Good morning again. So uh, my wife and my two boys went over to the family camp in Bandon. Uh, brilliant. Hot over there, like 70 degrees, so it's a little rough. Thinking about going over there tomorrow, too, because, woo! But if you haven't been on a, one of our, we try to do two a summer, one family camp, get on one of them if you can. It's amazing. You meet a lot of people. You slow down. You have a meal with them. There's great things for kids to do. It's just some of the best memories my kids have uh, of church, like going on a family camp and hanging out with all their friends and laughing and giggling and staying up too late and eating marshmallows and everything you're supposed to do. So uh, get signed up. We try to do two. We might try to do a third one. I don't know. I'm playing around with an idea in my head. So they're, they're amazing. I love them. So uh, think about it next year. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, picking up gospel of the kingdom. We're rolling through Jesus's first sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. I call it the gospel of the kingdom. And we're now in verse 31. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I almost skipped this. <laughs> One of the reasons is because in Mark, we touched on divorce, and that was less than two years ago. So I was like, well, you know, we are just, you know, outlining it. I thought, well, it's fresh enough. I don't have to do it again. But in June, in my family, two of my in-laws finalized their divorces. So it's like, hmm, I probably... Better hit that. And this is such a tough section, right? Anger, lust, divorce, lying is the next subject, and then retaliation is the subject after that. I think I'm going to do next Sunday on Christmas. We're just going to go like, you know what? Time to talk about Christmas. So divorce. I think in order to understand what Jesus is saying all the time, is you always have to get your head in the right mindset. So we have a tendency to read the Bible through an American 2023 lens, and that's not right. Because when we do, the end that we end up with, the conclusions we make are wrong. It would be like this. It'd be like if I was in Grant's Pass and you were in Eugene, and we were both trying to get to Bend or both trying to get to Bandon, or both trying to get somewhere, and we were sent the same directions. Would that work? No, because you have to have the same starting point in order to end up at the same destination. So part of studying the Bible is you have to get to the same starting point as the original hearers. So backstory to the people that were listening to Jesus in 31 or 30 AD, it'd be something like this. 
On marriage, they'd have two major sections of scripture. Number one is Genesis 2. First marriage. Where there's poems where God says, for this cause, a man shall leave his mom and dad and he will cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And they were naked and unashamed. That there's this brilliance to paradise where the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, they get married and it's pretty and there's friendship and there's no games and they talk about everything and it's brilliant and amazing and they're fruitful and they multiply. It's awesome, right? It's one plus one for life. It's sugar and spice and everything nice. But there's a second text that they would have in mind. And it's what Jesus is referencing right here. And it's Deuteronomy 24, verses one through four. I'll read it for you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, in Jesus' time, this little phrase, indecency, was a major, major controversy because there were two schools of thought. The conservative school of thought was she has to have committed adultery on him. That's the indecency. That's the only legitimate reason for divorce. But there was a liberal school of thought. And the liberal school of thought was indecency is anything that your wife does that makes you sin. So if she cooks you eggs in the morning and puts too much pepper on them and you get mad, divorce her, fire her, right? There's the two schools of thought. So that's this term has a lot of baggage with it. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, I feel sorry for this woman, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. There's a bunch of stuff in here that God is actually protecting ladies from. I don't wanna get into it. I'm just saying, these are the two big verses that people were thinking about in Jesus's day. So what happened in Genesis 2? The brilliance and the beauty and the, oh yeah, this is awesome. It became what? Snipes and snails and puppy dog tails? Because of Genesis 3. When sin enters and it gets a hold, a serpent wraps around the human heart and starts to just inject poison in us, the good thing that God designed in marriage gets fractured, gets ruined, right? There's an Old Testament word, it's Hebrew, it's the dode, right? Dode means this, the intermingling of souls. That what God wanted when the two become one flesh was not just a physical relationship, a physical oneness, but he wants a uh, mental and spiritual oneness, right? Where you start to be able to finish one another's sentences, right? When you know exactly what she's gonna order, he's gonna order on a menu. 
Do you know this? Science has actually found the longer a couple is married, the more they start to look like each other, which can be really good news for some guys and really bad news for some gals. Like, oh, great. <laughs> I'm going to look like that. <laughs> that's the dough. That's what God wants, right? So I did premarital counsel for a long time. And I'd always try to get, hey, we're not in Genesis 2 anymore. Genesis 3 has happened. We're not in that anymore. I try to get it across to them. And I would start out by saying, listen, you two, the only people that believe marriage is easy is engaged people, okay? You're gonna get married, trust me. And every one of them would wanna argue with me. Oh, not us. Matt, you don't know us. You don't understand us. You don't know. He understands me like no one else. No one, has under, ever, no one has ever done what he's done. You don't. And then the guy would be like, I can talk to her all the time. I call her up. We talk for hours and hours. She knows everything about me. We've put all of our issues on the table. It's not going to happen to us, Matt. And I'll say, okay, fine. When are you getting married? Let's make an appointment for six months after that. And then we'll talk. My favorite was this guy that came back. And he's like, bro, dude. I'm like, what? It's like, my wife has changed. I said, what do you mean? He said, when the ring went on, she became her mom. What do I do? I'm like, well, now we can talk, all right? <laughs> so God has this incredible thing in Genesis 2, but then sin enters, gets around the human heart. And what's fractured and What's, what's supposed to be beautiful is fractured. It's like your iPhone, right? You drop it, it still works, but it glitches all the time. So there's still some good and there's some great, but it's fractured and it's going to have some problems with it. And I try to figure out like what percentage of pastoral counseling and pastoral work, what percentage of that is dealing with marriages and dealing with the product of marriages, kids? It's gotta be 80% plus maybe 90%. The majority of what I talk to people about, it's about their marriage. It's about raising kids. It's about parenting. It's about those things. So what was supposed to be, be fruitful and multiply in paradise became be fighting and messy in Murphy, Oregon. So that's where we're at now. These two sections are informing the listeners of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just tackle divorce and marriage in one text. He actually expands on this little section in about a half a chapter in Matthew 19. So I'm gonna read that for you so you kind of have all the data that you need when it comes to marriage and divorce. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's the controversy, remember? Indecency, is it sexual immorality? That's the only thing, or is it burning my toast? That's the question they're asking. This is the big controversy. Is there no fault divorce? Does there have to be a fault? They're asking that same question. So he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2. So they no longer are two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. But it goes on. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? What text are they referencing here? Deuteronomy 24. Did Moses command them to give a certificate of divorce? No, right? We have to. We've got no choice. You burn my toast, I have to fire you. Moses told me I have to. Right? It's just ridiculous. So he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Whoop-dee, what a text, huh? Marriage and divorce. You could spend a month of Sundays. There are books written on this. Thousand page books on this text. I wanna just give us three quick things. That's all I have time for. Three questions people ask, three big kind of concepts from this text. Number one, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That what Jesus is saying is this, when you get married, something happens. There's no longer two in God's economy. There's just one. That when you say, I do, you're saying, I'm giving up my autonomous life and I'm living now for someone else. It's one. So divorce, here's what divorce is in biblical terms. Divorce is amputation. It's taking what is supposed to be one and cleaving it, dividing it in half again. It's why the church has stood firmly against divorce for thousands of years. It's why I fight for marriages when I talk with people. It's why I counsel and do everything I can. Warn, sit together. This is amputation. Look out. Give it everything possible because that's what you're supposed to do. Good doctors do that, right? They fight to save things. If you went to the doctor because you had a, a crushed thumb or something, right? You hit your thumb with a hammer and the doctor told you, well, I think we need to amputate. You'd be like, what are you, what, where? Well, we better start the wrist. Is there another option? Yeah, we can go to the elbow or the shoulder. Your choice. You'd be like, you're insane. Amputation is the nuclear option. No way. Same way. The Bible says it's the nuclear option. And so when I talk with people, it is, I'm fighting for your marriage. I want this thing to work. I hope and believe that the power of scripture and the power of counsel and the power of truth will help you. And I've seen amazing things happen where God has taken real diseased, broken marriages and healed them. But I've also seen people that I have done my hardest work for them and they're divorced today. They're divorced. It's amputation. And, and the Bible doesn't say it has to be. The Bible says it's allowed. 
It's not prescribed. There can be, like sexual immorality is one of the reasons why Jesus says, hey, it's possible, right? But there's gonna be complications with it. Amputation always has complications. Do you know that? So I have a guy who, he, he lost his arm when he was young. And he says, to this day, this was decades ago, he still has phantom feelings and he wants to scratch his hand. You know how agonizing that would be to have a scratch on your hand you cannot scratch. Phantom feelings. When you get divorced, there will be phantom feelings. That it can be decades later and you'll see your ex or you'll see something or you'll relive a memory and all those emotions come back up. All that sometimes vengeful, hateful bitterness comes and lives again because there's phantom feelings, right? Friends, who gets to keep the friends? You know this, if you've walked with people that have gotten divorced, all of a sudden it gets really weird, right? Because it's like, well, if you're friends with him, then I can't be friends with you, right? There's this like division between friends. Family gets tough. My wife, her parents are still alive and they got divorced. And it, it, we've had to walk on eggshells for 23 years with them. Like, well, if you're inviting him, then I'm not coming. We try to be Switzerland, but you can't. You wanna be like, I'm neutral. We're not, we don't have a dog in this fight. Yeah, but he's been talking to you, so you, you're polluted. No, right? It's, it's, it's what happens. And divorce hurts kids. Listen to this text. Maybe you've heard this before. It's in Malachi, and it's brilliant. Like, meditate on this text if you have time because it's God talking about marriage post-sin, post-fall. This is what God says. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? What did God just say when you say, I do? His ruach, his spirit was actually in that moment when you said, I do, and knitted you together. How brilliant is that? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. See, kids, kids get hurt in divorce. In my family, my dad left when we were young, never around. And I had an older brother. And if you know that kind of situation raised by a single mom, but you got an older brother, your older brother kind of becomes a dad, right? He kind of steps into that role, but he's a teenager, so he's not the nicest dad, right? He's just like, you're a moron, quit doing that stupid stuff. Like that's the instruction I got. But there was kind of an older figure that's telling me like, don't do things like that. But my older brother had nothing. And more than anything, he longed to have a dad to direct him and confirm him. Because my older brother, I don't know, I've never been around a better natural born leader than my brother. He's the Shackleton of Grant's past. Like he would get, just because he was doing something, all of his friends would want to do it with him. Like, yeah, let's go do that. Because he just had this thing about him. Like when he was 18, he and a buddy drove the Alcan Highway up to Alaska the buddy had been smoking pot, so there was pot in the car. So the car gets confiscated at the Canada-Alaska border, and they have to hitchhike into town, like into Anchorage. Like, that's a long ways. That's the western states, right? So that's just him. Gets a job working a 
king crab fishing boat in the Bering Sea. Does that for three years. Before it was cool, before it was like reality TV, this is early 90s, 91, 92, 93. He is fishing, king crab fishing in the Alaskan Sea. Just makes a lot of money. Comes back here, buys all these toys. He's got a Ford F-250, got a motorcycle, got a Jeep, just having the time of his life because he's got cash. And then he watches this movie, Jeremiah Johnson. Anybody seen that movie? Right? A guy that goes to war and then just disenfranchised with life and leaves and goes and like lives in the Yukon. And my brother said, I'm doing it. We're like, what? Yep. Sells his truck, sells everything he owns, buys a horse and a pack mule and all the gear to go live like off grid. And he goes, I am going out to the Kalmyopsis wilderness and maybe you'll see me and maybe you won't. We're like, what? His buddies are like, I'm doing it too. I'm like, Why? Because Chris is doing it. I'm like, you will die. He'll survive, you'll die. Don't do it, right? That's just what he had, like this magnetism about him. And when I think about my brother, he had all this ability, all this drive in him, but there was never a steering wheel. He just ping-ponged in life because there's never a dad saying, hey, this is how God designed you, head in that direction. There was never anyone that just closed the gap for him. And so he died at 36 years of age. Well, Matt, come on. You can't make a statistic out of one person. I know that. And I haven't. If you want, read the Longevity Project. It won't be duplicated in our lifetime. Because back in the 1920s, Stanford University interviewed all these kindergartners, 1,500 of them and then followed these kindergartners and would interview them periodically through the rest of their lives until they all died. And they wanted to figure out kind of what, what makes for a flourishing life, what makes for a good life. And these are kids that went through World War II. The boys went and fought in World War II. Like you got everything imaginable that these kids went through. And so they just followed them. Unbelievable information, gold mine. But the whole goal of it was, how do you live a long life? The longevity project. Who seemed to live the longest? Well, there was one predictor of a premature death. It wasn't war, it wasn't education, it wasn't money, it wasn't career. The single most important predictor that you would die young was your parents got divorced when you were a kid. Number one, that something breaks in the heart of a child. That's why God says in Malachi, why do I want godly marriages? Why do I put my spirit into that? Because I want godly offspring. Godly offspring. Your marriage matters, not just to you. Your marriage matters to your kids. There's another one, Dartmouth College did one. It's called Hardwired to Connect. This one's only about five years old. And they wanted to look at something. What they found was over 50 years, the suicide rate in teens had gone up 450%. When I think about that, I'm 51. I don't remember a single buddy or friend or anyone in my high school that committed suicide during my four years there. I don't remember it happening one time. But in the three and a half years since this building has been open, I have done too many teenage suicides right here because something's happening. And the, the well-being of a society, the barometer of a society is how well are your teens doing? That's the barometer. And what they also found was this, not only 450% increase in suicide, but kids, 
Self-reported well-being. How are you doing? 50 years ago, 7% of, 7% of kids said, you know, I'm struggling. That number is about 25% now. A quarter of teens are saying, life's hard, I struggle. Here's what they found. If parents were intact, same mom, same dad, those numbers were cut by two or three. Suicide, drugs, all those numbers. Harmful behaviors cut by a factor of two to three. If same mom, same dad. If that same mom, same dad, same kid, if they're in a community of faith, divide it now by five or 10, right? And community of faith is whatever it is, depending on it, but it was a five to 10 reduction in all those numbers. It matters. Jesus is saying, listen, what God has joined together, let no man separate because amputation has really bad fallout. That's what he's saying. All right, if there's all that, why would he allow it? Deuteronomy 24. Why? Look at verse eight. Here's why. Because of your hardness of heart. Why is there divorce? Someone has a hard heart. Sin. Sin enters the camp, hardens somebody, and you can't get back. The one sin that Jesus does mention is sexual immorality, right? That can cause hardness of heart, no doubt, in the other person. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about abandonment as another one. That can cause hardness of heart, no doubt. But it's always sin. Divorce happens because of sin. That's what it is, right? That two people that loved each other at some point, they sin against each other. There's sin that's unforgiven. It just goes on and on and on. And finally, they're done. Hard heart. I don't want to work on this anymore. Whenever I do marriage counseling, I don't do a lot anymore. We have Dick Worthington, who's way better than me. So, hey, go talk to Dick. He'll help you. I'll just kind of muddle around. So he'll help you. But I'd always start out by just saying this. I'd look at both of them and say, do you want this marriage to work? Yes or no? Do you want this marriage to work? Yes or no? Because if you don't, we're done. I can't help you. If your heart is hard, I can't help. There's no, I don't have a magic marriage wand to wave over you if you don't want it to work it won't. And what I found is this, the spouse that has all the ammo, right? Maybe it's the wife. She's just got it. She's got a Torah of stuff that has been broken by her husband. And the husband is like, yeah, I'm a blow it case. What I found is the one that's right often ends up with the hardest heart. It's like they hold on to their righteousness. They hold on to it, to their own hurt. They get vengeful and harder and harder and harder. And the one that's like, man, I'm a blow case. I sin. I'm actually ends up more healed than it because hardness of heart is bad. That's why. And then there's this crazy little thing that gets really controversial and I have to hit it or I'm not being honest. Jesus says this, if you marry another, there's adultery. So look at verse nine. I say to you, it's the second time Jesus has said this. He said it back in Matthew chapter five, our, our launching text. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. This text is debated all over the place. I'm not gonna solve it all. I'm gonna tell you kind of some options and where I stand on it. 
Some people believe that here's what would happen 2,000 years ago. There was such a stigma on divorce that if you divorced a woman and sent her away with this certificate of divorce, no one would marry her. She's damaged goods. So the only option that she would have, because now she's got rent payments and food payments and car payments and insurance payments, she's got to live. Her only option for work, prostitution. So that is one way to interpret it. Here's what I think. I think in Genesis 2, when two become one, that brilliant, incredible work that two become one, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, that the moment there's any kind of adultery and lust, the Bible says, that's why porn is so bad. The moment there's adultery, the moment you introduce a third person into that, what happens is the two, the one isn't there anymore. So you've already broken. The, the divorce is just a piece of paper, right? It's actually the act of adultery that breaks the union. So Jesus says, if there's already been sexual immorality, the marriage is broken. It's already broken. If there was not adultery, but there's another reason for that divorce, the moment there is that physical act, then it's broken. But the divorce is just paper. It's actually the act of sexual union that breaks or bonds a marriage. And if it's outside of your spouse, you've already broken it. That's why that except immorality is in there over and over. Because we'll see a text where God says the same thing about divorce. But I do want you to notice one thing in this. Jesus assumes that the divorced person will get remarried. Deuteronomy 24 assumes the divorced person will get remarried, right? Jesus doesn't start a convent for women right here. He doesn't start a monastery where they all, to go, all got to go. Verse 12 does talk about a special gift of a eunuch, but Jesus says only certain people have that that can be celibate. So Jesus is assuming the divorced person will get remarried. Please just talk that away in your head, right? So practical. What if you had an unbiblical divorce? There was no immorality. What if you caused a divorce? What if it's your hardness of heart, your sin that did it? Can you get remarried? I get that question from people more frequently than you would think. Here's my answer, the quick answer. Divorce cannot be the unforgivable sin. There's one unforgivable sin in the Bible. It's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin. That every other sin in the Bible can be forgiven. So it would almost be asking like this, can a murderer get married? Well, of course, because murder can be forgiven. Can a liar be married? Well, of course, because lying can be forgiven, right? Can a fornicator get married? Well, of course, because fornication can be married. I believe can be forgiven. I believe in real repentance, that repentance cleans your slate. That Jesus says, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful to forgive you of that sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I believe in real forgiveness. And in the Bible, there are bad marriages. Do you know that? Look at David marrying Bathsheba. Nobody's going to that one as the model for biblical marriage, right? 
commit adultery, murder the husband, and cover it up for a while. There's your three steps to a biblical marriage. It's a bad one. And David is confronted in that bad marriage, confesses his sins, repents about it, and listen to Psalm 51, where David writes on the other side of a really, really, really bad marriage relationship. On the other side of it, listen to what David writes in Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. He doesn't say, hey, that woman shouldn't have been out there bathing naked. She tempted me. There's no blame shifting. There's no pointing fingers. David is owning his own junk. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. I've got a hard heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's David's response to repentance to a really busted up relationship. That repentance really works. Jesus really forgives and Jesus really cleanses from the hardest sins. That's what he does. And so for me, there's no ceiling then. Okay, if you've repent, yeah, if you're divorced, you better heal. You better, there, there's, there's gonna be funky feelings. You gotta look out for your own hardness of heart. Like be careful of your own hardness of heart that you gotta be touched by God's grace. And you just need to time out for a while and uh, or you're gonna be angry. You end up getting angry at God, right? Do you know that God knows what it feels like, knows what it feels like to be divorced? Do you know this? Let me read for you Jeremiah 3 verse 8. Listen to what God says. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? <laughs> that faithless one, Israel. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. This is God saying, I'll take her back. I don't have a hard heart but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithful one Israel, I had sent her away with a... What happened to God? He got divorced from Israel because he said, I wanna be your one God and you're to be my one people. And there's to be no one else in between us. We're to be one and what happened with Israel, they kept going after other idols, doing really bad stuff with those other idols and other people. And it happened over and over and over again. And God finally says, okay, we're divorced. You're going to Babylon. God knows what it feels like. God knows, right? And I always struggle with how, this, how the church has looked at divorced people. Outsider, second-class citizens. No, people that need to be touched and healed. Right? My mom, uh, most godly person I know, to this day, no one has sought the kingdom more than my mom did. My dad, 
Polar opposite. Why is it that godly gals end up with really bad guys? Like, oh my goodness, right? If I had a baseball, or no, I'm not gonna say that. But bad, right? Breaks my heart. She waited for 15 years for my dad. Never came back. Adultery, abandonment, everything. The list. Never came back. She waited for 15 years because of like the pressure she felt from church and oh, it's negative, and I'm just gonna hang in and stick there with it. And man, I appreciate that. But sometimes it's broken. Sometimes it's so broken it can't be fixed. Sometimes there's such hardness of heart, right? And be careful. Be careful. If you're holding on, if you're divorced and you're holding on to your reasons why you're right, you're hurting yourself at this point. You're drinking poison, hoping your ex dies, but it's not happening. You're hurting yourself. And you gotta be healed. You gotta be like David and own your own iniquity and own your own sin and say, I I was part of the problem. And I need to be healed now. I need to be touched by your grace. I don't want a hard heart. See, the gospel of the kingdom is, there's a way forward that the repentance works, that Jesus can heal you, that you can be touched by his grace. There's one final text in Malachi, that last book before Jesus comes, before he announces the kingdom. It's the final Old Testament book. Look how it ends. It ends with this. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you can be healed from all that. You can let all that stuff go. You can put it all away. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Have you ever seen a calf in the morning when it gets let go? Is there any more joyous moment than a calf being let go from the stall? That's what Jesus is saying can happen for you when you're healed, when you own your stuff, when you move forward, and then it says you shall tread down the wicked. Those wicked things that were capturing you and grabbing you, you're gonna tread them down now, right? Romans 5.20 says this, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You gotta be healed. Jesus says this, those that have been forgiven much, love much that when you realize how much Jesus has done for you and how you've been healed and touched by his grace and moved by it, what happens is you become a lover instead of a hater, instead of bitter, instead of holding on to all the angst you have against somebody, you let it all go because you know you've been forgiven. You own your own junk. You're touched by his grace and you're changed. 